man welcome to crow triple seven radio this is episode 186 uh athen Comenti is back with us to talk about the sky clock i uh, love having athen on uh because how he views the sky clock is he goes outside looks up over his head and what he actually sees above his head is what he works with and there's a lot to be said for that in a world that's convinced everyone else that they need to do some bizarre shuffle and shift to move to something that is not over your head. Jason Lingren is here. As always, welcome, Jason. Good morning, Crow. So I know this will actually go out a couple episodes away from the Shoot the Moon, but I'll mention it because you and I are just back from Shoot the Moon. This is the first recording we're doing since we got back uh, two days ago. Um, Shoot the Moon was a big success. I'm sure we'll have talked about it before this, but I want to thank everybody who showed up, uh, truly. I met everybody, had a great time, and it was quite a thing to stand in a room with that many people uh, with a commonality of thought. Uh, no, no contention there. Uh, what would you add, Jason? It was fantastic. Room full of like-minded people, all who were so excited and happy to be there. It was just an absolutely wonderful experience, and we uh, definitely need to do that again. Right, and a shout-out to Billy Ray from TFR, Billy Ray Valentine, uh, sussed this whole thing out, got the venue there on West 31st Street in Manhattan. I'm still a little bit baffled about how people live in New York. Man, it is claustrophobic in there, and you're lucky if you see a tree anywhere. If you do, it's coming through the sidewalk. <laughs> Anyhow, anything else, Jason, or should we get Athen in here? Let's move on. Welcome, Athen. Hey, thanks. Thanks for having me back on, Crow. All right. Well, let's let's open up doing this the the right way, Athen. Let's uh, go ahead and let everyone know where they can find you, where your sites are, all that kind of thing before we jump in. Okay, great. Yeah, MasteringTheZodiac.com is the website and YouTube channels by the same name, Mastering the Zodiac. And uh, yeah, uh, YouTube content there and um, resources on the website. Okay, so we're going to jump in here, Athen, with a quick recap on sidereal astrology. Uh, most people, I, I don't know, correct me if, if this is a misspeak on my part, but what I notice when I look at the astrology community is many people are working from tropical astrology and sidereal and again, correct me if I'm wrong, the main difference here is with sidereal, when you walk out into the night sky and you look up, you are working from what you literally see. And it is absolutely baffling to me that people have been convinced that somehow the spin of the earth has unsynced the sky clock from the world below, which is ludicrous from my point of view, if you use logic. Um, so Athen is going to describe to us what is sidereal astrology and where does it come from? So pick it up from there, Athen, if you can. Cool. So yeah, that's essentially what it is. Uh, true sidereal is using the actual sky. It would seem kind of obvious that most astrology would be using the actual sky since it's astrology. Um, but unfortunately, the vast majority of the uh, systems are using a very simplified system. So first of all, what's happening is... Um, all the systems, including the Vedic systems, are using an even 30 degrees uh, for each of the signs, when in fact the constellations are different sizes, like Virgo is very large, Cancer is very small. So the reason this has probably happened is because roughly around the Babylonian and pre-Babylonian time period, they started making calendars. And they wanted like, you know, even calendars, kind of like our clocks, which is like an even hour 12 hours kind of a thing. So they simplified everything into an even 30 degrees. But the West has taken it one step further and completely removed the astrology from the sky completely, basically using the signs around the seasons. So it's more of a seasonal system. And that's why like every spring, it's Aries and it's always consistently Aries because uh, that's where they've set the chart. 
But in truth, because of precession, uh, there's a slight change to that. So where we were roughly about 3,000 years ago was Aries during spring, when they said it this way about 2,000 years ago. But uh, now the uh, sign during spring is Pisces. And so, you know, that's a whole sign different. And, you know, it completely changes all the signs from mainstream astrology. So let's talk about this, these ideas for a minute. See, this is what's baffling to me. Um, over on Crow777radio.com, the members in the members forum, we have gone at this. I've gone back to get old sky charts from the 1600s. Um, and it's clear things have been screwed with exactly what you're talking about. Almost certainly by the time human beings wanted to get calendars and clean divisions, um, that's where it started to go sideways, I think. I mean, we can demonstrate all along sometime around what they call 1620. I don't accept these timelines, but we use the date to speak. Uh, it's pretty clear to me that the setting of Easter for a single day is where these nonsensical artificial constructs, you know, deviating human beings from nature took place. But here's my problem, Athen. So if you wanted to have 30 degrees per sign so that you could make your calendar match the sky clock, you could choose any stars to do it. I mean, none of the signs really look like what they're representing. Maybe Scorpio does a little bit, but it even gets worse from there. And we talked about this last time. We started to question uh, whether or not the sign of Libra is even a real sign. It's kind of jammed in there. The size makes it look funny, but here's the real rub. In, in the sign of Libra, there are two dominant stars called Zubin el Shanubi and Zubin el Shamali. And when you translate the meaning of those star names, it means the north and south claws of the scorpion. Clearly, the scorpion's claws are stubby now, but they used to be all the way up into what we call now Libra. So, when we begin to look at the way you're doing it, what you're basically saying is the division of the constellation we see now, regardless of size, is what you run with, right? Right, exactly. So it's using the actual stars. So you could call it Libra, you could call it whatever you want, but that part of the sky has a certain resonance. And so when planets are in that location or luminaries are in that location, there is this um, certain theme that we see associated with it. So it is funny, though, that the you know, mainstream systems are calling them by these constellation names, when in fact it has absolutely nothing to do with the constellation. Like I said, like, you know, where they're saying something is, is almost a full sign different. So yeah, it's very interesting. And um, I think that's the most important thing is to get back to our roots, to actually looking at the sky and, and seeing exactly what is this constellation about? What is the resonance of it? And how can we, you know, align to that in our daily lives so we can live more, more in accordance with nature, more in accordance with that aspect of the human experience, whether it's Scorpio, Libra, Virgo, whatever it might be. All right. So let's go forward a little bit and we'll start to talk about why the sky clock is important. But I'm going to make a couple points here because I can already imagine the comments coming where people want to say things just because they believe it's so. So I'm going to dispel that with facts that you can go out and observe in nature. Every light in the sky, from my point of view, is best described as a luminary. That basically means it's a light. We want to know a heck of a lot more, but that's what we can say for now. The idea that these lights have no bearing on living beings in this world is patently and provably ridiculous. After all, what a plant does in the spring is not what a plant does in the fall. What's doing that? The biggest luminary we have called the sun. So how is it that we can then look at the moon and understand that all the horseshoe crabs where I am come ashore because of a certain full moon? The entirety of supposedly the largest animal structure in the world, the Great Barrier Reef, all that coral spawns, same month every year. I think it might be November if I remember correctly. That's because of the moon. So there's the two main luminaries. So how are you going to make the argument that any other luminary has no effect on human life? And I want to make that clear because... If you were concerned with what most people call planets, which again, I call luminaries, um, how could it be that we would move them a full sign in the zodiacal representation away from what they truly are? In other words, if the luminaries play a role, which we can prove they do by nature, um, how could it be that you would move their position to some influential part of the sky and then claim they're influencing us? But with that, Let's talk, Athen, about why the sky clock is important. And that was my best attempt to prove to folks those luminaries are the clock for our world. And they do, in fact, have a direct influence on everything that happens here. 
Yeah, there's definitely patterns and influences, in my opinion. But, you know, it's easy to see it, too, as like the entire universe is cycles within cycles and patterns within patterns. And the luminaries aren't even necessarily having an effect on us. I mean, obviously, the moon and the sun are, and arguably maybe the other ones, too. But the important thing is, is they're telling what time it is, you know, right. and, and so we're just seeing where we're at in the cycle, basically. I agree. I'm um, just just like the seasons. So let's let's just make that perfectly clear. Um, and I'm glad you said that, because now that I'm thinking about what I just said, people might take it that there's some magical you know, rays that we can't see coming from a luminary. It's basically no different than the clock on the wall. When it gets to be noon, what happens? People say it's time for my midday meal. When the sun goes down and the clock gets up to nine or 10, what happens? People say, hey man, I'm tired. I got to go to sleep. So that's, that's a better allegory maybe than how I described it because I don't want to imply there's some magical force at play here other than the concept of it's a clock in the sky that governs us. Yeah, that's exactly how I see it too. Yeah, sky clock. Is there any evidence from your studies, Athen, that any of the constellations have changed over however many years? It's something I see brought up a lot, and some folks say that nothing has changed absolutely at all, but then I've seen other sources cite that indeed they have shifted. Like you mean the movement of the star or the uh, luminaries, like that they're moving? Yeah, the actual shape of the constellations and all that. Yeah. I think he's talking boundaries, yeah. Yeah, it's definitely possible. Absolutely. They're starting to calculate some of the speeds of some of these uh, luminaries and how fast they're moving, and some of them are quite quick. Like, you know, within 500 years, you would actually notice a change. That's the fastest one. So, yeah, we're just starting to figure out, like, how much the sky has probably changed since then. Some luminaries are obviously still consistent, but even just one or two luminaries moving could totally change the representation or the visual representation of that constellation for sure. Yeah, and that's that's why I think it's another important reason to use the sky as we see it now. You know, if it looks like scales, there's probably a reason for that, you know, or whatever the constellation is, but maybe things looked entirely different. Uh, Scorpio is a good example we talked about last time, like, you know, representing originally the eagle, right? Right. And so completely different from a scorpion. And yeah, that's, that was probably a huge part of it. Well, let's talk about that for a second, because the idea that we have of, of that part of the sky clock division of the year, which we call fall, is when the scorpion is going to be prominent, and it's all negative connotations. That's when we go into free fall just past the fall or autumnal equinox. But let, let me make a point here. There's In the modern era, we've been divided from nature, and there are so many proofs I could bring, but I'll use this one. When I first traveled back from San Diego to Rhode Island with my nephew, we did an eight or 10,000-mile you know, jaunt around the United States. We went over to Newport, Rhode Island, where St. George's Cathedral is. You folks can look this up online. It's a real looking cathedral for a United States thing. Um, Not built back as far as the, I think it's 1800s, but I've forgotten. But if you go into St. George's Cathedral, which we did, and I have a clip up on YouTube, and you film the aisleway going up to the altar, what do you see but the zodiacal wheel laid right tiled right into the walkway up there. And you've been convinced that if you're religious or you're a Christian or any of these things, that all that other stuff is mumbo jumbo. I got news for you. That's a modern construct. That's when we started to get pulled from nature. These things at one point were tied one-to-one, and there are plenty of examples. Even in the Jewish tradition, they act like it's forbidden to use the zodiac, and yet they found plenty of old temples where the zodiac is incorporated in the same way, tiled into the floor. And I think these are important ideas. But if I was to ask you, Athen, this is the foundation for everything, isn't it? The sky clock is the foundation for everything else a human, a plant, or an animal will do in this world, is it not? I feel like it certainly represents that. You know, like essentially what we're looking at with the luminaries is, you know, these constellations is essentially life divided up into the 12 or 13 different segments that we could also divide up even further. You know, we could divide the qualities of life infinitely, but uh, the sky is sort of dividing them up in this 12 or 13. And that's essentially, each of these is essentially representing some essence of the human experience or the life experience. So depending on what's going on in the sky, absolutely, it's going to represent some facet of some experience we're having or of life in and of itself. 
And that's why it's important too to actually go out and like immerse yourself into nature because we're over here like reading magazines and stuff about signs and all this, you know, the Western world. And it's like so far removed from what these, you know, luminaries, these constellations are actually about. And there's no way to really know what these essences of life are about until you actually go out and and you're in it in nature. You know, Vedic astrologers uh, originally wouldn't write anything down. They wouldn't conceptualize anything because it took away from the essential meaning of it, you know, that essence of life that it's describing. So they would literally just speak it and you would go out and experience certain things and they'd be like, oh yeah, this is Sagittarius type of energy, you know? But yeah, I think that's exactly what the sky clock is showing is an essence of life. And uh, whatever the time is, I think it's time to incorporate that sort of essence uh, in our experiences. So we can, we can relate this back to the Greek gods that Jason and I were covering so much recently. Um, and from from our point of view, these are not gods in the in the way we think about it. It's representations of aspects of nature. And from my point of view, the sky clock is a very, very similar thing. It, you know, we're told that way back when astrology was at its height, that it took thousands of generations of observation to figure out that, hey, man, there's cycles here that we can see. And then that information was codified and however it was taught to the point where it started to get written down. Uh, but the main point I would make here is uh, it's no different than the clock on your cell phone telling you it's morning, you go out. Well, it's a different experience in the morning than it is at noon. Totally different. The plants are doing something different. Everything in nature is doing something different. When you get to evening and the sun's getting ready to go down, all these other things. And that's a mini cycle of a larger cycle we could call a week, a month, or a year. By the time we get to the year, Athen, one of the most important things that's been lost in modern culture is the four main divisions of the year. To me, if I could snap my fingers and make people aware for a basis of understanding our world and nature a little more closely, it would be the four main divisions of the year, which may well be one of the first representations of the cross. These things are hard to know, but what I'm talking about is the summer solstice, which we currently mark at around June 21, then the equinox in September, and I won't put a date on it because equinoxes I have proven outright are totally tied to your geography. And then the solstice, which would be the 21st of December, what we basically call Christmas. And then we would go to the vernal or spring equinox, which is in March on our calendar. And again, I won't put a date on it. So what I'm telling you is the two solstices, the one in summer is the highest declination of the sun or the highest up from our point of view, the sun will be. The opposite of that is true at around Christmas time on December 21. So basically those dates are pretty much fixed. We have shown all day long that the equinoxes are something else altogether. So with all that in mind, let's talk a little bit about your point of view of the four main divisions of the year, Athen. Yeah. So that cycle, the yearly cycle, super important. Um, again, another great example of how our current systems have taken us away from nature is like starting the year in this arbitrary January 21st. <laughs> like why is <laughs> that's funny? Like why, you know, uh, it should be on that December 21st there, right? That's are you, I mean, you could start on any of these four corners really, but you know, that would make sense around that time. And so again, it's, it's about living in accordance with nature. And when it is spring, you know, it is time for certain, it does favor certain activities. Um, just like, you know, again, the sky clock is showing and ending phases as we approach winter, which is also really funny because, you know, winter is when the mainstream media and the corporations and everyone really try to get everyone riled up, you know, with like Thanksgiving and Christmas and all this, like, you know, shopping and buying Black Friday and all this stuff, when it's supposed to actually be a very spiritual time. It's supposed to be the ending of the cycle. The energies are supposed to die down. We're supposed to do a reset. And slowly, you know, after the 21st of December, start to build new things in our life. So, yeah, again, that's, I think, a great example of the disconnection from nature. And, and I think it's so important to use those main divisions for living our life, whether it's spring life, winter life, whatever it might be. So let's lay that out a little more layman's terms so people can be completely down with what you said. What I have come to understand is correct and observable is once you pass June 21, the height of the power and glory of the sun called the summer solstice, lo and behold, the days begin to shorten and the nights begin to lengthen. By the time you get down to September on our current messed up calendar, uh, we get to that equinox, the fall or autumnal equinox. 
fall is a good way to think about it because you are in fact falling. Uh, the reason you are falling is because spiritual concerns and consciousness of human beings can be shown to start diminish as soon as we go past the height of the power of the sun. By the time you're down to that fall equinox, it's what I call free fall. You're going to free fall all the way down to the 21st. Now to get back to Athens, what Athens was saying, it's provable. This is when censorship comes. This is when, in this period between the equinox and Christmas, just to put modern monikers on them, is when we see the censorship being put in and get this, the new programming, that's right, words have meaning, programming on television. And so, as Athen was pointing out, human beings should be winding down and keeping spiritual concerns high because we are falling asleep, kind of. And what actually happens is all this materialism and winding you up and the way Athens said is going on. It's a manipulation. And just to be perfectly clear, when we get down to the 21st, so people understand, lo and behold, three days hence, the nights begin to shorten and the days begin to lengthen. Uh, would you add anything to that? No, I mean, that's that's a great way of putting it. Exactly. I mean, look what nature's doing. It's shortening the cycle. It's time for us to shorten our cycles. And we are in a very receptive time. That brings up a really good point. Like, we're in a more uh, tranquil time, you know, and we're easily susceptible to new ideas, like hypnotic ideas and stuff during that time, because, you know, it's supposed to be more about opening up and, you know, receiving, but receiving, of course, from spirits, God, whatever your own personal belief is on that, but, you know, receiving something on a more receptive or spiritual level versus something from a bunch of humans trying to control other humans, you know. So before I ask Jason if he wants to offer anything up about the four main divisions, um, I'll repoint out that the equinoxes in the oldest historical texts are a big damn idea. And I've reiterated this a lot of time, but it is so important, I don't mind saying it again. The idea of the equinoxes at one time, it's a day of balance. Well, why is it a day of balance? Because on a true equinox, night and day are exactly equal to the second all right. Now, the modern descriptions of these two times, the date you're given is nonsense unless it is lucky to hit your geography. In other words, a guy in New York and California do not see sunrise at the same time. Therefore, they do not see the equinox at the same time per se. That's one way you could think about it. What it actually is true is in the northern part of the United States, the equinox will occur on a day, a little further south, day later, a little further south, day later. And so what the media is doing is telling you it's this day. That's what they did with Easter. And let me tell you something, it is impossible to put Easter for the entire world on one day. The world does not work that way. It's based on your geography. To get back to the point here, there was a time when the fall, the equinox in September was called the Silver Gate, and the vernal or spring equinox, when all the energy, more energy than any other time of any occurrence in the world is going to be re-released into the natural world. Every tree gets leaves. All the green happens. All the babies are coming. All the animals are becoming pregnant. Just this massive release of energy, including the sun, appearing to be warmer again. That was called the Golden Gate. And before I hand it to Jason, I'll mention the Golden Gate in San Francisco is encoding this idea. If you go on Google Earth, you can even see that the layout the directional layout is is almost like a gate for the sun, and of course, it's painted orange. But I wanted to get all that in. Uh, anything you want to slide in here, Jason? Well, you were mentioning about the time of the year when it's supposed to reset. Wasn't there an intentional shifting of everything that the reset should actually be not January 1st, but September, right? Well, here's the thing, and I like how Athen put it, because he made a damn good point. From my point of view, the only time it makes sense to have a first of the year, which it once was, before the Romans supposedly got a hold of it. The reason we have the idea of April Fools is because the first of the year used to be at the spring equinox. When the Romans, we are told, changed it, there were these people who knew damn well that was apart from nature. So they kept worshiping, and they worshiped for a month. So in the first of April, they were still worshiping, and the powers that be called them April Fools to try to shame them into changing the calendar they knew to be correct. Now, I agree with that assessment for the simple reason that it's the largest change in the entire cycle we see. We're coming out of a frozen or very cold winter into the largest explosion of energy in, that anyone will ever experience in this world, ever, called spring. So that's why I think that's a good idea. But what Athens said is also true. There are, like the Coptic calendar, if I'm not mistaken, puts the first of the year on September 11. 
hint, hint, hint. So what they're saying is the whole cycle went around and we're starting it and ending it here. So that's fine. I'm good with that. But the idea that somehow January 1st has anything to do with the beginning or ending of a cycle is so arbitrary as to be nonsensical. I mean, does that kind of get at what you were asking? Yeah, I think so. And I was wondering what Athen might actually know about that as well and how that may have shifted around the way the sky clock was viewed in different times and different places. Yeah, I'm not sure, actually. I haven't looked into this September uh, kind of time period in terms of the beginning. In terms of seasons, uh, that's why I was referencing December 21st in the sense of the cycle being the ending because of the you know shortening of day and all this. Um, and it's getting colder. And so in astrology, that tends to represent the ending of a cycle, like the end of the lunar cycle, for example. It's the lowest energy. It's the ending, uh, more of an internal kind of time. But yeah, it really doesn't matter, in my opinion, where you start the cycle because, I mean, these are still just kind of human arbitrary decisions. The, the important thing is, is that there's, you know, four key distinctions and you should probably be doing what that time period is calling you to do if, you know, if you want to live in accordance with nature, essentially. So there's another good point I would make here uh, where, where, like when I was living in San Diego, you are a little bit more separated from nature in a pleasant climate like that because the seasons don't come into your thinking. When I got back here and had been here for a few years, everything had reverted back and everything that I knew at that point in my life changed with regard to nature. And one thing I noticed is the dang news, man. The damn news loves the darkness, does it not? That's why all those things happen in the fall and the winter that Athen was talking about. But one thing I noticed is recently the local news loves to come on and say, in the last couple of weeks, you've lost 15 minutes of daylight getting darker. It's getting darker. But at no time have I ever heard anyone on the upside after Christmas say, hey, guess what? We gained 15 minutes of light. You know, They're always concerned with the darkness of this whole thing. But you know what we should do? How come in the Western world, nobody's actually using the sky as we see it above our heads? Do you think there's a deception in all that? Yeah, I mean, the reason is, is nobody really knows. I mean, a very small handful of people know this. So like if you were to go just, you know, talk to random people on the street and you're like, hey, do you know your your sun sign? Yeah, most people like kind of know their sign and stuff, but, you know, definitely don't know that that's not where the sun actually was. And even those like in, in India who are using the actual, you know, constellations, like everyone just kind of takes it at face value. So most people just simply don't know. Now, the reason is, yes, I do think it was a bit of a establishment-directed agenda. And um, if we look at when everything really started to get off in the West with astrology was when uh, Ptolemy uh, came out, and this is around 200-something AD, around there in the Roman Empire. And um, he came out and said, hey, look, we're going to we're going to solve this problem of precession, which is, again, the changing of the constellations in the sky. And we're going to just set the chart to the seasons. Now, Ptolemy was obviously very much tied with the establishment, but that's not really the point. The point is, is after Ptolemy, once we went into the Dark Ages and, and Middle Ages and onward, there was this sort of really strong establishment power in, in astrology where, you know, pretty much the church controlled the astrology. I mean, they pretty much there controlled it, it. So. Yep. So, so they, you know, they used the Ptolemy simplifying for the seasons. I think it's pretty obvious that they did it because they wanted to keep the real astrology for themselves, right? I mean, it's very much about noble class and stuff. Like, why would you give the plebeians or whatever, you know, the people this um, this more accurate system when you can keep that for yourself? And 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 I think that's more than likely what happened. I think you're spot on. I think you and I might differ a little bit about dark ages or middle ages or, or the length of time since these things occurred, but I am with you all day long. It is based on Ptolemy, and we can show all day long that the jacking of our clock by Pope Gregory the Thirteenth. These these dudes openly have histories that say we're basing this on Ptolemy. They're claiming that they've lost track of how the sky clock works, which I don't really accept. Point is, is if you go back to Ptolemy, there's an entirely, even though things are getting changed, there's an entirely different model. Now, if you come up to what we were told is around 1620, you know, you're going to start getting Copernicus and Galileo, these big names that are actors in my point of view, now that I've gone back and taken them apart. And when you do, you will find nonsense all over everything. So in the terms of Galileo, here's an example. The Pope is trying to tie Easter to one day. 
Now, there's your first proof that this is completely separation from nature. It is not possible to force the sun to come up everywhere in the world at the same time, which basically stuffing Easter into a single calendar day is. All right. Just to be perfectly clear about it. But old Galileo comes along and other guys come along and say, guess what? The Earth is not where you think it is in our model. It's spinning around the sun. We're going to the NASA model. No one's heard of NASA yet, but we're going to the NASA model. And the Pope says, hey, man, you can't do that. You're going against scripture. We're going to kill you. And then the Pope says, well, we're not going to kill you, but we're jailing you. And then the Pope says, well, we're not jailing you, but you can't leave your house. And then the Pope says, you can't leave your house, but I guess you can publish the book. I'm not even kidding here. That's the history we have. So the book gets published, and in less than 90 years, the Jesuit order is teaching exactly what the Pope initially said we'll kill you for. And that's how we got that model. So I am with you all day long on these ideas, and I think you're spot on. I think that the power class, uh, the bankers, the the religious heads, the, the power centers of the world, Rome, 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 Rome. We're basically saying we have this natural system that's been here as long as we can see back, and it's the best system we have, and we're keeping it for ourselves. So I, I think you nailed it. Anything you want to get in on here, Jason? Well, I'm very curious more about how much things may have been different years ago and how much uh, sinister behavior may have gone into changing everything so that the powers that be would have more accurate models or whatever you want to call it to work with than anything we do. What do you think, Athan? Yeah, I mean, probably. Yeah, I mean, uh, astrology is a very dynamic, well, you know, astrology among other things, but in this case, astrology is a very dynamic uh, system. And if we look at the Vedics who have been much truer to their roots, we can see that they have far more information on astrology and, and the techniques are far more like robust and precise and all of this. And, and for some reason in the West, it's like we've almost completely started over. Like the information is just gone, you know, like where did it go? It's basically like we're still living in, you know, probably around you know, 200 AD in terms of what we knew back then about astrology and what we're operating with now. So where were all those advancements? You know, where did where did everything go? Probably, you know, hidden and used and, and still, I'm sure, being used, you know, for uh, for timing events. That's why, like, you know, we're talking about the uh, winter time being, you know, the elite obviously obviously know that, you know, because of the sky clock, that this is a time of favoring programming and getting people to go along with certain plans because people are more receptive at that time, among other things, you know, when Saturn is in front of a certain constellation, like I'm sure they have some really deep knowledge and, and information about this. The unfortunate thing for us in the West is we're having to relearn all of this. So we're basically starting from scratch, but at least we now have technology like the internet and these smartphones where we can actually see the actual sky. And now we can start to build, I think, from now on. The timing of the events is the big thing that I would really be wanting to get at here. What are the bad guys doing and when and why? And can we actually decode that properly and understand why they're doing what they're doing when they're doing it? Yeah, so if we look at the placements of some of these collective luminaries like Uranus, Neptune, Pluto, basically the more distant ones, these luminaries are moving very, very slowly relative to the constellations. And so they tend to represent more of larger time periods. And I think by looking at where those outer luminaries are, we can see what the elite are probably using this time period for, and then what we can use this time period for, you know, to advance ourselves, obviously. So the cool thing is, is that now that we have the actual system that they're using, we can kind of reverse engineer it and see, okay, they're probably timing, you know, this event or this particular thing at this time, because that would be the most beneficial time for them to do that. Or in that way, because in that way would be the most beneficial way for that time, right? So yeah, we can get into those outer luminaries if you'd like, but I, I think now that we have the actual system, we can see probably what they're planning at certain times. Well, I would add a couple things here. First of all, in the information age, yeah, it's as simple as going, finding a massive corporation, looking up its corporation date. That's tied to the sky clock. You know, it's, it's a bit like a, a quote that I pulled to use in the movie Shoot the Moon. Anyone who thinks all fruits come ripe when the strawberries do knows nothing about grapes. That is a very specific statement. 
about the two divisions of the year that form around equinoxes. And there is so much buried in that. I think it's Paracelsus. I hope I didn't mess that up. That would be a terrible one to mess up. But you can look it up. Um, and I'm telling you, there are levels of meaning put in that. And this is exactly what we're talking about when programming comes to you in the fall. There's a reason for these things. But before we get uh, up to the outer luminaries, can we touch on nodes? And just to refresh memories, I stated after filming a number of eclipses, solar and lunar, um, that the moon plays no role in a solar eclipse. Provably. Provably. People can argue about this all they want. It is provable. And so I went looked for other traditions. And that's when I became familiar with the Vedic idea of nodes that they call Ketu and Rahu. But, Athen, we have nodes in Western astrology, don't don't we? So can you kind of outline the way the West views the nodes and contrast that to the idea of Ketu and Rahu from the Vedic cosmology? Yeah, absolutely. So again, the West oversimplifying things, they tend to place a lot of emphasis on the North Node or what would be Rahu. And so this is definitely what the Vedics are saying is future karma, your dharma, but it's also where you're building. It's like where you're building karma. And so the West is really focused on this. So if you were to go to a Western astrologer, for example, and get a reading, and and, and when they're looking at your nodes, they're essentially looking at your life path. They're saying, okay, what is your life unfolding like? And then how can you align to those energies? They'd be essentially saying that your path is the North Node. It is Rahu. What is a node, though? So people understand, we're saying node, node, node. What is the Western definition of what a node actually is? So the nodes, from a Western perspective, are where the planes of the sun, so in this case the ecliptic, cross over with the plane of the moon. So where the moon would be rising and crossing the ecliptic but rising, that would be your north node or Rahu. And then where the moon is dipping below the ecliptic and crossing, that would be your south node or K2. And this is essentially where we have the eclipses. So these, these intersecting you know, paths are always, you know, you can always kind of measure them. They do, you can't see them, and that, that's the whole point, right? But you could theoretically say that's where they're crossing over, but essentially when the sun and moon are next to each other in that part of the sky, that's what the Western astrologers would say is the eclipse, and that those locations in astrology are called the north and south nodes. So those locations where the eclipses are taking place. All right, so let's define a couple things for people who aren't understanding all the terms you just used. The ecliptic is the path of the sun and the moons and the planets, roughly. Uh, it's a wider band of sky with all the so-called planets or other luminaries. Uh, remember the old Tibetan quote I used in Shoot the Moon? The Tibetans, for a thousand or more years, have been saying, just keep in mind that the closer the moon gets to the sun, the darker it gets. That is a key point to remember. But when we go to Athens' Western definition, which is observable and replicatable, He's basically telling you that the path of the moon is going to cross the ecliptic, which is the path, sun and moon, and other luminaries. Think of this. I have stated many times, and for those who want to know a little more about it, there's a man named Walter Russell who, when I came to my conclusions and I stated them for the first time, someone turned me on to Walter Russell. He goes into great depth to what I'm about to say. From my point of view, there is only one force in our world. It's called electricity. Now, there's also a daughter of that force called magnetism. Maybe you might call it electromagnetism. From my point of view, these are my points of view, it is observable and maybe not quite 100% provable with what we have now, but the, the sun is typically masculine, male, and electric, and conscious, and the moon is feminine and magnetic. Now, if these things are correct, and that is my point of view, now start to think about what Athen just told you about a magnetic moon crossing an electric-based path. But anyhow, I, I wanted to lay that all down to try to illustrate for people who are not familiar with this. So go ahead, keep going, Athen. Yeah, so that's essentially what it is from the Western perspective. And yeah, I totally agree too. Like from an astrological standpoint, the sun is the more masculine part of the personality or the life experience, and the moon is the more receptive magnetic part of that. But um, looking at the nodes, so if you were to go to an astrologer and, and you know, from a Western perspective and, and get a reading on your life path, uh, it would be very much centered around building of your North Node. And it's a huge error because if you get caught up all into just your future karma, you know, you're going to get very caught up into the material realm. And that's kind of going back to what we're seeing in the West right now is this 
a very externally driven consumerism kind of uh, perspective on things. So unfortunately, that's what the West really focuses on. But the Vedics have maintained what I believe is, is the key here, which is about balance. Um, the life path is about finding the balance between your future dharma, your future karma, and also the past karma, which is the south node or K2, and um, resolving that and finding peace with that. So it's definitely a more centered one. It definitely involves both the yin and yang, you know, the magnetic and the electric aspects of the sun and moon in this case, astrologically. And then, you know, through combining those two in the chart, you can see, you know, what is a healthy path for someone to incorporate both those sides of their personality, that kind of masculine, feminine aspects of themselves and of their life experiences. So if I'm not mistaken, Rahu and Ketu, and I hope I don't mess this up because I always do, Rahu would be the rising of the moon across the ecliptic, Ketu would be the setting, correct me if I mess that up, but it's also referred to as the head and the tail of the dragon sometimes, and I'll point to people to the supposed uh, Mayan cosmology, uh, if there is such a thing, that's such a kind of messed up part of our history that's been screwed with so, so mightily, the idea that there's a dragon eating the sun. Can you talk a little bit about the Vedic idea of the nodes um, and just kind of define that? From my point of view, what's happened here is the idea of nodes is exactly what you're saying. It's dragging us into materialism and nonsensical ways so far from the middle path of balance. Do you have enough information to lay down a little bit about the Vedic idea of nodes? Yeah, a little bit. So like you were saying, the Rahu, the North Node, um, and that is when the moon is rising along the, you know, crossing the ecliptic. But in this case, that would represent the top of the demon or the dragon. And so that is the mouth, right? So it's about consuming, right? Yep. It's about eating. It's about consciousness because that's where the eyes are. It's where the top of the body is. So it represents all those aspects of the person and the path. And then K2, the south node, the bottom half is where we sort of have our roots and where we come from. And it's also where we excrete our waste as well. So it's this kind of more sinister and uh, darker side of ourself as well because of that past karma that we've built from it with our roots. So that's, that's how they've described it. And, um, and like I said, I think that's the perfect way of describing what we know about it. Because it's, again, about the balance. Because essentially what you're trying to do is you're, you're trying to incorporate both polarities. Now, the reason they call it a demon is because, again, it's based on the material realm, both past and future. So if you look at, you know, Indian, you know, scripture and stuff, it's, it's very much about peace and, and, and meditation and living presently and not getting too caught up into karma, essentially, living a, a balanced, karmic-free type of life. And so because the nodes represent the building and releasing of karma, they're associated with that side of ourself, the quote unquote demonic, you know, uh, or reptilian or dragon side of ourself that can get caught up into consumerism with the North Node and can get caught up into past karma and repeat patterns from the past with the South Node. So, um, yeah, so I think that's essentially the goal is how can we find that balance, that middle path between what could be a very destructive force, right? The both top or the bottom half of the demon can be insanely destructive. But when we're centered, when we're following a path that isn't into an extreme, it's more balanced, it's harmonious, then it isn't, you know, the demon any longer, you could say. And that's not a Vedic principle. I just want to make that clear. That's not a Vedic principle, but drawing the kind of analogy there, it's almost like, you know, this is a more centered, healthier path, and it tends to uh, resolve more of the demonic or negative components of what would normally be extremes with the North and South nodes. So, Athen, if you recall the full solar eclipse, if I remember correctly, was it August 21, 2017, maybe the first full solar eclipse, so-called solar eclipse we had in the United States, was that Rahu or Ketu that would have been responsible for that, if I am correct in my assertion that the Vedics had it right, the nodes are doing it, not the moon. Do you recall whether it was Rahu or Ketu? Well, we had, let's see, we had a, because there's always a solar eclipse and a lunar eclipse. The solar eclipse was a Rahu. Yeah, it was Rahu. So the head, the head of the supposed dragon. Here's, here's what I will tell you, and, I, and I've said this a few times, but let me just preface. If you don't know how to safely sun gaze, do not do it. You can damage your eyes for good. I'm not kidding here. 
And I always say you wouldn't feed a baby a jalapeno. It's a similar thing going on. I sun gazed a lot in San Diego and got up to a decent time before the chem trailing across the ecliptic. Hint, hint, hint. It was blocking the sun so much we couldn't get clean shots at even doing that. When I was sun gazing before the chem trailing became so bad, we would take off our shoes and we would stare into the sun. You work up to it. And again, don't do it. Don't just go out and stare at the sun. We did it at rise and set because there's less UV at those times and you slowly build up a few seconds at a time. By the time I'd gotten up to a few minutes, I realized that it was such an energizing, almost healing feeling from doing it, even for just a few minutes, um, staring straight into the sun and it just a, a positive experience, energizing everything about it, even literally feeling like my vision had gotten better. I have astigmatism in one eye. Felt like that was getting better. Well, here's what happened on what I think is August 21, 2017, during the first full eclipse we'd had in a long time. At the height of the eclipse for my area, I said, to heck with this. I can't detect the moon. I'm going to try some more, but I'm going to put my equipment down and I'm going to stare into the sun. And boy, did I get an eye opener. I now know beyond any doubt that an eclipse is a negative event. And I don't know how I couldn't have figured this out. The, the, the light's being blocked. How can any time light is being blocked from us be a positive sign? But here's what happened. So I'm staring into the sun, and it's about half covered where I was, the full extent of the clip from my area up in Rhode Island, and it was complete chaos, like little things just ricocheting, and I, I don't even know how to describe it. Not the same experience as when we were sun gazing at sunrise and sunset in San Diego. During this eclipse, it was utter chaos. And I knew instantly when I got done that I'll never do that again during an eclipse and that eclipses are negative in aspect from my point of view. What do you think about all that, Athen? Yeah, it's definitely from from the Vedic perspective and I think the natural perspective. I mean, there's a reason. Like if you if even even just going outside during an eclipse is creepy, like like that should tell you like what nature is doing at that time should tell you what that time period feels like and what it's doing right and i agree the whole dimming of the sky and all this yeah it, it, and again going back to the vedics this is the that was the rahu one and so in that case that would be the extreme right that's the extreme of the north node of the consuming and that kind of thing but even this even if it was a south node or k2 solar eclipse that would be you know about past karma coming up and and resolving things from the past but either way those are extreme time periods and i think it's so important to maintain balance during those times i'm a pretty common sense dude but right after i had done that during the eclipse it, it shocked I, I was like i was shaken because i was thinking man what did i just do but i learned i know i survived so i guess what doesn't kill you makes you stronger but what it comes down to we'll, we'll close out with these eclipse ideas because this is another thing in our world that has been completely misdescribed from my point of view you know there's all these ideas you've been told your whole life if you look at the sun you'll go blind these things aren't true i'm not telling you to go out and look at the sun don't do it if you want to be a sun gazer, you need to go find a teacher and learn how to do it. And believe me, you do not just open your eyes and stare at the sun. You start literally a few seconds and add a few seconds each day. And even at that, some people are not able to do it. We've covered the, the blood factor, you know, the RH factor. Some people are very light sensitive. So just don't go out and, and make a jackass out of yourself. Be careful with these things. My point being is I came to understand so many things are misdescribed. And during these eclipses, Athen, I've been making all these statements when I, when I finally proved you cannot detect the moon, when I finally proved that the sun is in fact an infinite light source, so the shadow cast on the world is in fact the size of the object eclipsing the sun, uh, provably so. Um, we walked away with all these other things that we understood finally or start, you know, it's like we're, we're babies trying to get out of our diapers. Like you said, starting over clean. And we'd come to all these, these new ideas about what these things were. And when I look back now, I think, how could it be that with common sense and logic, I couldn't put together that simply understanding lights being blocked wasn't enough for me to understand. I was still saying, well, this is this negative or positive? Well, what, what's going on here? But anything you want to add about eclipses before we prepare to wrap up for hour one? No, I think that pretty much sums it up. Maintain balance during that time. Listen, listen to your, you know, listen to nature, listen to your body, be attuned to it. It is also a very spiritual time and it does have a benefit. And the benefit here is what is arising that you can now become more aware of. 
right? Because uh, all this stuff, like the 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 sky clock and the timing of events, is essentially about incorporating these aspects of ourself, right? And so, how can we accept whatever arises during that time period and and use that time period instead of you know watching a movie or staying home or whatever? Like you know, go out, experience it, experience it, get into nature ground yourself and see what arises because it is a very spiritual time during those eclipses. All right. Two things before I ask you to reiterate all the places people can contact you. Firstly, Rose is going to send me a nasty gram. I forgot to mention in the intro, the first episode we did with Athen Comenti is episode 164 on Crow 777 Radio, if you guys want to go back and listen to that. But other than that, I want to point something out here. There is no holiday or major world event that you are aware of in this world that was not geared to the sky clock. There just isn't. You can go look at them all, and it doesn't matter if they're from religious traditions or not. And if you've been convinced that somehow, because you're religious, thinking about where the sun in the year is somehow a sin, I don't know what to tell you there. The sun is provably the thing that gives this world light and lets all the plant grow and lets all the babies be born and all the things we need to exist here. And there was a time when every major religious tradition, as far as I can tell, were keenly attuned to this knowledge. Not only were they keenly attuned, they set up things like Easter and Passover at these specific times. Hint, hint, hint. Those two would be the spring equinox. So verily, verily, I say unto you, don't separate these ideas anymore. If you have a religious point of view, you're in a perfect creation from our point of view. How can these two things be separate? But Athen, can you reiterate all the places people can find you? And right before you do that, again, first episode here with Athen was 164. Go ahead. Yeah, so MasteringTheZodiac.com is the website. There's an introduction video there into True Sidereal. There's also a true sidereal birth chart calculator, so you can see exactly where the luminaries were at the time of your birth. If you're into that, there's daily videos that I make to see exactly where the luminaries are each day and how to work with those in ways that are balanced and are in accordance with the time period. And uh, there's readings there. There's courses there if you want to go deeper into astrology. And yeah, and on YouTube, there's my videos. Again, um, MasteringTheZodiac.com. All right, man, I'm digging that you have the idea that we're starting over here, and I truly appreciate it. It's why I like having you back. You look up to see what's actually there, and then you recognize that we got to piece this all back together now. Jason, what would you like to get in before we wrap up Hour 1? I'd like to know, once we get into Hour 2, if there's anything in any ancient texts or anything that has been accurately recorded that we can use, as I brought up earlier about the movements of the constellations over the years, to try and actually date things accurately, and can we actually find out if there is a gap somewhere in history? I think that that's one of the ways that we could really go after the whole missing history concept. So that's a bit like the Fomenko idea. So Athen, hold that in mind for when we come back to hour two to refresh minds. Fomenko is a Russian researcher who endeavored to prove that the history we've been handed is a lie agreed upon and that all history is much closer to us. Like if you thought it was a thousand years, maybe it's only two or three or 400 or something like this. And one of the ways he did it was understanding that eclipses that were in historical records are cyclical and he could use those as a basis. But Athen will do that. Also, uh, pulling from your notes, Athen, we're going to get into the luminaries. We're going to talk about some of the outer luminaries, Uranus and Aries, Neptune, Aquarius, Pluto, and Sag. I'm waiting to get in on Pluto, man, because as everybody knows, Neil Myas Tyson demoted Pluto or helped demote it on television, and everybody knows that knows anything about what we're talking about. This is related to that fateful day in September all those years ago. Anyhow, that does bring hour one of episode 186, and we're going to be covering these things, and the Pluto thing's going to be a hot topic. So there it is, man. Join us over at Crow777Radio.com. That is the only site in this world that is truly a Crow777 site. Other ones may not be safe to visit, so be careful there. Uh, there is fraud going on. So join us in the free speech zone at Crow777Radio.com. There it is, man. Cheers. Mm-hmm.